This is part four of a series we're doing on the church, and this week, the title of the sermon is, Who Are the People of God? It's, uh, it's formed in, a, in the form of a question, and it's just simply, Who Are the People of God? Now, depending upon what denominational background you grew up in, even if it's a non-denominational background, you answer that question differently. Who are the people of God? So if you grew up Baptist or non-denominational, so kind of a, in a charismatic church or um, you know, a Baptist church or, or Assemblies of God church, Pentecostal church, or fill in the blank, uh, you fall into a stream that believes that the only people of God, the, the, the people of God, the answer to that question, are only those who have been regenerated and who have become Christians and have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. And they then can have the mark of being a Christian, which is then baptism. So you repent and believe. Okay, That is, uh, theologians call, a form of understanding of baptism and the overall covenants of God Two people. It's called credo-baptism. You, you believe first, repent and believe, then get baptized. Many of us uh, grew up in churches like this. In fact, I would say most of us in this room grew up in churches uh, that believed that baptism was reserved for those who had repented and believed in Jesus and then get baptized. There is another stream of Christianity that believes that the people of God are broader than that, and therefore those that get the sign of the covenant, okay, the, uh, being a covenant people of God, are believers and another group, uh, believers and their children. And so if you grew up Presbyterian, if you grew up uh, Lutheran, or even, even uh, uh, some non-denominational church, or, uh, networks, um, what's the network called? Christian Missionary Alliance, I think, is what it's called. Uh, that uh, there's one group that, that practices both. You can be a part of the same congregation and, and practice both uh, infant baptism and uh, what people have called believers' baptism. And so to, they answer the question, "Who are the people of God?" differently than the stream over here, who grew up in Baptist churches, non-denominational churches. And who knew the answer to the question, "Who are the people of God?" could be such a historically dividing answer. Answer. So we're a Baptist church. So how are we going to answer the question, who are the people of God? Well, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go on a little journey, and we're going to look at other answers to the question, who are the people of God? And then we're going to try to clarify how we answer who are the people of God. That's the question. Who are the people of God? Is it believers and their children? Or is it simply those who have been regenerated and have repented and believed in Jesus? That's the big question. You'd think, well, that doesn't sound like a big difference. We're going to go through it and see a few things. So who are the people of God? It comes down now practically to uh, questions about baptism and communion. So we're going to talk a little bit about baptism and communion. But uh, there are two primary ways that the, the question, who are the people of God, have been answered historically. And then there are variations in these two different ways that people have answered this question. So there's two primary ways. So what we're going to do today is not look at all the variations of the ways people have answered the question, who are the people of God. We're going to tackle two primary ways. So first, the first way we're going to look at is classic covenant theology. Okay, we're going to bring it. It's not going to stay in the clouds up here. I promise there'll be practical implications at the end of this. Classic covenant theology. And then the second view is we're going to look at just a Baptist covenant theology or Christ-centered view of the covenants. And both would be also considered Christ-centered, but we're going to look at these two primary views and then we're going to get to a point at the end uh, that I promise will be somewhat somewhat practical. So uh, first, uh, what we need to do is look at these this this idea of covenant. Okay, God 
in his infinite wisdom, covenants certain things with people. He, he decides to interact with people, and he does so through covenants. We see this first in Genesis chapter 2. I want you to go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 2 and look at verse 15. There's a couple in the garden named Adam and Eve, and there's a glorious Eden. And there is a God who is a speaking God who speaks to Adam, and he speaks to Eve. He tells Adam things and then requires Adam to tell some things to Eve. But here's what God covenants uh, with Adam about. It's a covenant of works. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good, or excuse me, verse 15 to 17, the Lord took took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, this is a covenant of works that God makes with humanity. Now, both views of Covenant theology and Baptist covenant theology, um, which all these different streams of Protestants come from, both views agree that there's a covenant that God makes with people, with Adam in the garden, uh, and a covenant that Adam breaks. Okay? He is told clearly, you, shall, you can eat of all of these uh, trees and fruit, you cannot eat of this one tree. And that the condition is, if you eat of the tree, you will die. So what's the condition if Adam and Eve were to eat? Judgment. Uh, what's the judgment? Death. Okay, That's the covenant of works. If you break this covenant that I make with you, Adam, you will die. Well, we know the story, right? The serpent comes, tempts Eve. Eve takes with Adam right with her, and humanity breaks covenant with God. The result of that is not just physical death, it's spiritual death. Spiritual death happened in a moment. And everything that was beautiful and created began to fracture, and all of a sudden, things that were intended to work in a certain way, because of sin, began to work in a way that was broken. And it, it spun what seemed to be out of control. And now there's death, there's disease, there's suffering, there's you name it, all, all sorts of things happen as a result of the fall. And now the world that we see, although it's beautiful and, it, and creation is good, it is broken. And so we've talked a little bit about that because when we, we look at a sunset, I've talked about the beauty of sunsets before. When we're looking at a sunset, we're looking at a sunset within a broken and fractured world. So when Christ one day returns, there are swirls and colors and beauty to a restored earth that we can't even imagine right now. Our mind cannot conceive. There is going to be a great fixer. This, Christ will return and fix what was broken at the fall and it will be even more glorious. So we have a covenant of works that God makes with man, and humanity, man, Adam and Eve, break that covenant. Now, here's where things begin to be different. First, we're going to look at these uh, two then alternative ways of looking at the covenants that God makes with man from this point forward. And first, we're going to look at the first view, which is classic covenantal theology. And I want to summarize it like this. In Genesis chapter 17, we see that in Genesis chapter 12, excuse me, God calls Abram out of his city, out of the town in which he was, and called him into the place that God was calling him to, what would one day be a promised land. And God promises Abraham something, Abram something. God promises that in you and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed, and through your offspring, they will number the stars of the sky. There, there will be uh, a land for you, and Abraham, Abram, believes the promise that God gave him. He walked out of his homeland, not knowing where he was going, left everything, brought his entire family away into the land of Canaan. 
And the Bible says that it was counted to him as righteousness. It was counted as righteousness. And this is where classic covenant theology says is the entrance of uh, the covenant of grace. There was a covenant promised in uh, Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent will strike the heel of the seed of the woman. Okay, that's the future uh, Messiah, the seed of the woman, Jesus. But Jesus will crush his head. But the covenant of grace is ushered in, in classic covenant theology, in Genesis. And then we see Abraham having faith. And some of you who have never, always wondered, why do people baptize babies? Well, you're going to understand why some people baptize babies. And you're going to see, like, okay, that kind of makes sense. You're going to say, maybe they're not as crazy as I thought they were before. Because growing up, anybody that I heard of that was baptizing babies, I just thought they were nuts. They were, you know, like, why would you baptize a baby? That's weird. And has anybody else come from backgrounds like that where you just thought, like, that is, why do people do that? That's the weirdest thing ever. Well, I, now, you're, we're going to see the alternative view here in a minute, but at least you're going to see, okay, that's why they do it. Okay? We're on the edge of our seat wondering, why do people baptize babies? Here's exactly why. Because in Genesis 17, there's a covenant of circumcision. And God tells Abraham, changes the name, tells Abraham to circumcise not only himself, but every male in his household. So Abraham was the only one that expressed faith that we know of, but the rest of his household received the mark of being the covenant people of God. Does that make sense? One expressed faith, his household received the mark of the covenant. Okay, you following? So in the Old Testament, here's how the trajectory continues to work. You have in the Old Testament, you have the Jewish people, the covenant people of God, and there are some people within the Jewish people who did not have faith in the promises of God. But yet they were still called, rightly so in the Old Testament, the people of God, the Jewish people. So you have, within within this view, you have a mixed covenant. You have people of faith who have believed the promise, and people who have simply are marked as a part of the covenant, the males in the line of the Jewish people who are marked and in the covenant, you have this mixed covenant. You have people who are just the Jewish people who have not expressed faith, and then you have people who have expressed faith. This two groups, a mixed covenant. Make sense? Okay. So, therefore, today, in this view of classic covenant theology, this group of people, Presbyterians, even Lutherans, they have a different version or variation of of, of Um, covenant theology, but large amounts of Christians throughout the globe, not just the United United States, then look to the New Testament and they believe certain things in in this covenant of grace that was ushered in in Genesis chapter 12 continue in the New Covenant. So there's all these arguments back and forth and debates on TV, okay? The discontinuity and the continuity between the covenants. How do the New Testament and the Old Testament go together? And what aspects of, of the life of the old, in the Old Testament and the people of God in this covenant of grace, what aspects now roll into the New Covenant? And so there's all these debates and fights back and forth. But this group in classic covenant thinking believes that the sign of the covenant continues in the New Covenant and that the New Covenant is a, still a mixed covenant. So they believe the covenant of grace ushered in in Genesis chapter 12 and the New Covenant is just two administrations of the same covenant. So they believe that the sign of the covenant is to be given to believers and their children. Just like circumcision is given to Abraham and his household. You following the, the train of thinking? Okay, 
And before we all start thinking, okay, yes, that's, that, that was helpful for me to begin to understand that, to begin to understand, okay, there are reasons why people do the things that they do in other streams of within Christianity. That's helpful. I don't want to be wrongly judgmental of something that I don't understand. I want to understand something as rightly as possible. And I still have a limited scope on this. I'm still trying to learn and grow about what others believe in this classic covenant theology as well. So, some of the arguments uh, go like this. Well, in the book of Acts, verse 38 and 39, chapter 2, and we'll get there here in a second. In fact, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2 because we're going to end there. So, turn to Acts chapter 2 and look at verse 38 and 39. And this is used as an argument to say, look, this continues into the New Testament. 38 and 39. Verse 38 and 39 say this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. You see that? For your children. And this is one of the arguments within, again, classic covenantal theology, is that the new covenant has implications for the believer's children. It goes on in the book of Acts, and in the book of 1 Corinthians, you have household baptisms. You have these instances of household baptisms. So, what covenant theologians say is that there's still a pattern of this household work. There was a household that received the mark of circumcision, Abraham, and then in the New Testament, when people believed in Jesus, there's this household implication that goes along, and it continues. It's continuous. It's not... There's not discontinuity, there's continuity between what happened in the Old Testament and now what's happening in the New Testament. The households receive the mark of being in the covenant. Therefore, they would argue, believers in Jesus who have had repentance and faith, and if you're an adult, that you would, you would then need to do believer's baptism, you need to repent and believe, but then also your children are now brought into a covenant with God, even if they have not believed in Jesus or not. Okay? It's not that they're regenerated, Okay, classic covenantal Presbyterians would not say that your children are, they, they still need to come to a point of repentance and faith at some point, but it's a mixed covenant. There are people in, within this covenant of God that have Christ and don't have Christ. That makes sense. But they're under a covering of the household. Okay? Now, tried to do my best to articulate that the best way that I could. So uh, the conclusion then, in this one way to answer the question, who are the people of God? There are some people who look to both covenants and they try to connect the dots. How does this all come together? The people of God are believers in Jesus and their children. Therefore, those who receive the mark of the new covenant, those who they get baptized into the people of God, they get baptized in, it should be believers and their children. Those are the people of God, believers and their children. That's one way to answer the question. So, uh, in conclusion, this view, and this may be minimalistic, but it's tr I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. Even though it is Christ-centered, the pattern of behavior is defined by Abraham forward. The sign of the covenant is to be administered believers and their children. It's a mixed covenant, so the people of God are believers and their children. So that's one way. So now, maybe minimally you can say about uh, those who practice infant baptism, you can say, you know what? It's not as crazy as I once thought. I get it. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we have a different view, clearly, and good, godly men and women have viewed these things differently down through the centuries, down to the Reformation, basically forward, and even down back, past through the centuries, there's been fights and battles over this. But there's a second view 
and we are a Baptist church, so I don't want to spoil it or anything for you, but this is the view that I would ascribe to. Um, and so we're going to look at a few things. First, I want us to, to think about, uh, just keep your, actually, keep your finger in Acts chapter 2, because that's where we're going to end up going. But I want you to go to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And as you're going there, I'm going to go to Ephesians 2 and read just one verse. Baptists, historically, and even if you grew up in a non-denominational church or a Pentecostal church or whatever, uh, whether you realize this or not, this is why you only baptize believers. Okay? You're going to find out why you only historically have baptized those who... You're going to figure some things out today that you had no idea. You Pentecostals out there are going to realize, wow, we're more Baptists than I thought. And in fact, here in a second, we're going to find out, Baptists are going to find out, wow, I'm more Pentecostal than I thought. Okay? We're going to see that here in a second when we talk about the Spirit of God. Baptists believe that the covenants work like this. They're covenants of promise. It seems simpler. Uh, there's all these different nuances to this, and volume after volume. of It really, in a lot of ways, is in the clouds. It's kind of hard to understand sometimes when you get into the thick of this. But Baptists believe that from Adam, that broke the covenant of works, forward, there is a covenant promise. And every single other covenant promises a one-day fulfillment. Covenants of promise. And the terminology comes from the covenants of promise that I uh, bring it from is from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. It says or excuse me, verse uh, 12, it says this, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. So we believe that the covenants all were promises, they were shadows, even though grace was infused into those covenants based on a future work of Jesus, we believe that every one of these covenants okay, that God made with Adam in the garden after he sinned, then what God made with Noah, and then what God made with Abraham in Genesis 12, and what God made with Moses, and what God made with David, that they were all promises of a one-day fulfillment. They're, they're covenant promise and covenant realized one day in Christ. Now, what does that mean? First, uh, when I was in college, I had an Old Testament class. And I've told you this before. Uh, I wish in my, my college classes, my new Old Testament survey, they would have just gave me a Jesus Storybook Bible and said, read this 15 times. Okay, I would have loved that. But instead, we went through uh, a book, I believe it was by a Mennonite, and it was a good book, but the, the big question was, what is the central focus of the Old Testament? The, the debate back and forth is, how do we connect the, like, the New and Old Testament? How does it all flow together? What's the main point? And, you know, New Testament, Old Testament survey, you're trying to get the, old, you know, the overall story. And long story short, the answer to the question that I had in college wasn't Christ, it was something else. I forget what it was now. Okay, that's probably why I got like a D in that class. But uh, um, but I remember writing a paper distinctly, and I had just begin uh, my my faith had been growing, and I think it, when I was finishing school it was 2011, 10 or 11 or something like that. So not all the, that many years ago, uh, and I wrote about Jesus being the center of the Old and New Testament. That what what connects the two is Christ. This is how Christ. That's how Jesus interpreted the Old Testament. So I want again, we're, we're, we're going on a little journey here, and I don't want you to get lost. Is anybody just completely lost? You're like, man, I'm checked out. I hope that, uh, that's not my intent, okay? Keep going with me. Stay with me. Uh, hang in there. It'll get to a point, I promise. 
We have these covenants of promise. And when I begin to look at the scriptures, if you're at Luke 24, I want you to look in verse 46 and verse 47 first. So I'm going to turn to Luke. Let me find it. I told you to go there, and then I, I'm not even there. And I want to look at Jesus, Jesus' Jesus-centered view of the Bible, and therefore a Jesus-centered view of God's covenants with people. God's covenants with people. Now, look at verse 44. Let's start in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything that was written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets... And the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, for us today, we have five categories generally that we put all the books of the Old Testament into. We have the exact same Old Testament as the Jewish Bible today, okay, as the Jewish scriptures today. But they categorize the Old Testament into three categories, not five, as we do. And historically, that's been the case. When Jesus says, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, he's talking about the exact same Old Testament scriptures that we have today. And here's essentially what Jesus is saying. Listen to these uh, men, the disciples that were on the road to Emmaus. I'm the center of this thing. I'm the point. It says in John chapter 5, You search the scriptures because you think in them you find life, but you fail to see that it's they, it's they that bear witness about me, and you refuse to come to me. The point is a relationship with Christ. That's the emphasis. And, and when you look at the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the point of everything that was going on in the Old Testament, all these shadows, all these pictures, I am the point. I'm the center of it all. And so Jesus has a Jesus-centered view of everything that was going on in the Old Testament. Okay, you see this? A Jesus, Jesus had a Jesus-centered view of everything that was going on in the Old Testament. Look at verses 46 to 47. He goes on. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations beginning with Jerusalem. Notice, this is interesting. Jesus says that this all, whole thing is about Him, and then He says in them, it says that the Old Testament is declaring that Christ was going to have to suffer, die, and rise from the dead, and the result of that is that repentance, so a turning away from sins, and forgiveness of sin is proclaimed in His name. So what we are to proclaim and what all the Old Testament is about is about future, that this is going to happen, this is going to happen, He is going to do this, and then the response to His central work that the Old Testament was declaring is repent, from, repent and get your sins forgiven. So Jesus had a Jesus-centered view. There were implications that He was saying happened from understanding the Old Testament in the right way. Uh, repentance, and then it's for all nations, not just for Jerusalem. And in verse 49, look what verse 49 says. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power on high. Now, for the promise of God to come upon the people, something had to be done. See, the Old Testament, over, we're going to say, what, well, what is the promise? What are you talking about? The promise of the Father. What is the promise of the Father? Well, the Old Testament had this consistent longing to it. And we see over and over again that the people of God were breaking the commands of God like crazy. 
And we know about the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God was in the temple. And the Spirit of God then would rush upon a prophet at certain times and then would rush off of a prophet. When the Spirit of God would run on, rush onto a prophet, the prophet would prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord. But then the Spirit of God would leave that person. The Old Testament anticipates this day, what we're going to see in a, in a little bit, that the Holy Spirit would dwell, the temple of God, the family of God, would all have the Spirit of God. That the Spirit of God wouldn't just be in a temple, but the Spirit would be in a people. And this is what was promised. Now, we're going to go to Jeremiah chapter 31. And then we'll be in Acts 2, and then we'll finish. And all of this to say, who are the people of God? And then, I want to encourage you, because I want you to know, really, actually, you. You have the Spirit of God within you if you're a believer in Jesus. And I want you to know that. Definitively, It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit isn't going to work in greater or lesser ways in your life in the future. But I want you, and you need to know, if you're a believer in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit of God upon you. So we're going to say, okay, what promise is Jesus talking about in Luke 24? Wait until the promise of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We see that fulfilled in Acts 2. Jeremiah 31. Okay, let me get there. I know this is an unusual amount of turning, but I want to make three quick observations about the promise of the new covenant coming from the Old Testament. Okay, here was the promise that Jesus is talking about. It had been promised before. What's this promise? Well, verse 32, 31, start with me in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them up by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. That's the first observation. First observation is that the covenant people of God broke the covenant. Okay, God on his end has never been a covenant breaker. But what's been true about humanity since the garden is that humanity has been covenant breakers continually. Continually failing. Yes, we'll serve you. Every, every day we'll follow you, God. We love you. And then the next day turn and sacrifice uh, things to idols. It is simply not been, people, Israel, were covenant breakers. Who all was a covenant breaker? We've already said it. Adam was a covenant breaker. Noah was a covenant breaker. Abraham, a covenant breaker. We needed a faithful covenant keeper. There was a covenant broken. A covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Clearly, the covenant people of God didn't uphold their end of the bargain. So we still, the Old Testament, has this lingering thing that there needs to be a covenant keeper for things to happen the way I want them to happen, God uh, wanting them to happen, there has to be a covenant keeper. And oh, by the way, this is what we have in Christ, a great covenant keeper who obeyed the Father's will perfectly, who fulfilled the law, who came to do it in the place of the people of God, who came to do it. We finally have a covenant keeper. So for the promise to come, there has to be a covenant fulfilled. There has to be covenant promises, covenant fulfilled. There has to be two ends of this thing to happen for us to have the Spirit of God to come upon us. We have to have a covenant keeper. And friends, even to this day, uh, here's what I know about you and me. If the law is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, here's what I want to tell you about every single one of you. You are horrific covenant breakers. Every day. The most moral among us. Horrific covenant breakers. 
I mean, this morning, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You a covenant breaker or a covenant keeper? Covenant breaker. Who wasn't a covenant breaker? Jesus. We have, an, we have a covenant keeper. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Israel, you, all we all are covenant breakers. Verse 33, it says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be their people. This new covenant will have something to do with the heart. Something will be put in us. And in, in Ezekiel, or, yeah, in Ezekiel uh, we find that this new or this old heart is going to be taken out and a new heart be put in. The anticipation or the promise is that there's going to be one day where there's going to be something done to the hearts of the people. That's something new, that's something unique, that's something that isn't currently happening in the life of Israel, the people of God of old. Something new is coming where hearts are going to be affected. The hearts of a person is going to be affected in a unique and new way that historically the hearts of people were not affected. God's going to do this action in this new covenant work. And then the third observation is in verse 34. It says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each other and each and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And this is where we get some distinctions um, in the way that I personally and others view the, the covenants that God has given with people. This new covenant anticipates the day when no longer the covenant will be mixed. It anticipates the day when the covenant... When, when, it anticipates the day when all the people that are rightly called the people of God, know Him. It says, they, they shall all know Me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. All will be known, and all will know, and all of their sins will be forgiven. There is this one-to-one thing here. The, the covenant won't be mixed anymore where you have to tell people who are within the covenant people of God, the Jewish community, hey, when, if you're a part of the Jews, uh, before Christ you would have to almost evangelize the own people. Say, have faith in the promises. Have faith in what's to come. Have faith in the Messiah that's coming to rescue us. No longer in this new covenant are we told that there'll be a mixed community. It's all will know me. All will know. And, declares the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. goes like this. There will no longer be a temple because who will be the temple? The people. There's a redefinition of family. No longer is family defined as Jewish families. The family is now uh, across. Jesus came to set sword between family, to set at odds family members because of a greater family. There is a blood that is thicker than basic human blood. There is a blood that is divine that unites us to a way bigger and purer family than the family that we personally have, Jordan, me, and Ransom. And I want my son to be a part of that family. I've said this before, the greatest title in the world that my son can have is not my son. The greatest title in the world that I want for him is to be called my brother. And to grow up, to see him grow up, this is what I desperately want. I want him to be regenerated. 
I want him to repent of his sins and trust in Jesus. By God's grace, God stooped down when I was a very young boy. I had praying parents. They had me in church. They had people praying around me. Godly people my entire life. And I grew up five years old, saw my sin by God's grace. And you may say, well, five-year-old can't get saved. Well, I'm saying I, I, didn't, I had nothing to do with it. God just did it. And I felt conviction. I went and told my mom I need to meet Jesus. And I became my mom's br brother, and I became my father's brother on that day. And I want my son to be my brother. Because that's a thicker and truer family than what I have. It's thicker than DNA. It's broader than nationality. It connects a global community being the family of God. So this is the idea. God will dwell in his people. The Old Testament promises and anticipates. It leaves things like unknown. It's like foggy a little bit. We don't know how this is going to happen. Well, let's clear up some of the fog and go to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to finish up in Acts 2. And we're going to look at verse 37 to 41. And by the way, there are godly covenant theologians who, are disagree, who will disagree if they were to hear the audio online, who would disagree with it? And they're, and they're godly, and they love Jesus, and they love the Bible. This is one of the most confusing things in the world to me, to be honest, of why there is such disagreements about the answer to the question, who are the people of God? I don't know amongst the church, amongst God's people, I don't know why this causes such division. I, I really don't. Um, but there are godly people who don't see it this way, and I want to throw that out there because I don't want to villainize people who don't see things the way I see this here and the way people, most of our traditions have saw this down, uh, most of our traditions in this room anyways. I don't want to villainize them, but I do think it is definitely important. So I want you to see, in, starting in verse, oh, oh, I'm in First Timothy, I'm not in Acts 2, so let me go back here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts and Letters of the Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians and Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Anybody else know the rest? Maybe not that tune. Okay, first look at verse 33, because I want you to see this again, this terminology about the promise. Acts chapter 2, verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the, from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are now seeing and hearing. Okay, Stop real quick. Jesus received the promise of the Father, and now he is pouring out this promise on other people. This is what we saw in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, you see a window into what was happening after Jesus said, wait till you're clothed with power on high until the promised Holy Spirit comes upon you. They wait in Jerusalem. And in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit, Peter preaches, the Holy Spirit comes down, and the Holy Spirit comes into the 120 people. And they begin to speak in tongues. And, and people were hearing the gospel and the mighty acts of God proclaimed in, in their own language. And other people couldn't understand those languages. And they were hearing this massive work, seeing tongues of fire, whatever that means. And they were confusing all of this work. But the Holy Spirit was coming down into these people. And it was having an effect internally in them. It was coming out. And this is the promise. Jesus, receiving from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He is now pouring this out on yourselves. And this is what you are now seeing. And earlier, in verses 17 to 21 in Acts chapter 2, uh, the Apostle Peter says, this is what the prophet Joel talked about. What's happening now is what was promised back then, that the Holy Spirit would come and dwell, that young men would see dreams, and young women would prophesy, that the Spirit of God would rest in the people of God. Wouldn't be hanging out of the temple. That's why we get it all. When we call a building God's house, we do not know how screwed up that is. 
It's a basic functional denial of the gospel, to be honest. Well, that's God's house. That's God's house. No, it isn't. You are God's house. You are where the Spirit of God dwells. And every time we think about a building as being this temple-like place where you know the Trinity is hanging out and drinking tea all week, we misunderstand what is in us. God Himself dwelling in His people. You are the temple of God. And then, here's what we see starting in verse 38. Verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. I want you to connect these dots here. Forgiveness of sins goes along. When you say repent and be baptized, well, what does that mean, be baptized? Is that saying, well, you've got to be baptized to be saved? Everybody's been freaking out and they try to make Acts 2.38 a formula in, in the sense where it's, you know, this is the pattern. But essentially, baptism is a response of faith. You can't rightly be baptized and not have faith in Christ. There's no, you, you don't get baptized and have faith in Allah when you're getting baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're trusting in His work, not your own. But you see this work, repent and be baptized for what? For the forgiveness of your sins. For the new covenant community is about your sins being forgiven. This is the idea. Your sins can truly be forgiven. And if your sins are forgiven, you have the right title of being the people of God. Repent and be baptized. Cling to Christ. Your sins, for being for, your sins are being forgiven. We believe that those who repent and are baptized are those whose sins are forgiven. And then verse 39, we see the, the verse 39 differently than our covenant theologian friends. In verse 39 it says this, For the promise is for you and for your children, but not only that, for all who are far off. And this is where we say, well, if it's just a covenant promise for your children, why isn't it covenant promise for those who are far off too? We say, no. Verse 39 gives a qualifier. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. The promise of the Holy Spirit comes to everyone whom the Lord calls to Himself. The Spirit of God comes to dwell in you. You have the Spirit of God. This is the defining work. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you can't rightly be called being, being you can't rightly say you're one who's been called in the name of the Lord. You can't rightly be one who has said your sins are forgiven. You have to be called by God to have the Spirit of God come upon you. That's what the promise is, that the promise would come upon you. This is everyone whom the Lord calls to Himself. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, it says this, You, however, are not of the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. This is why we guard baptism, and communion, and reserve it for only those who have repented of their sins and have a credible profession of faith. This is why your Pentecostal background, this is why your non-denominational background, if you, if, if you grew up in those backgrounds, this is why your Baptist backgrounds, this is why we believe baptism is solely for believers, not believers and their children. Again, I'm not wanting to villainize. It's only for believers. It's because we believe that first, you have to repent of your sins, and you have to believe and be baptized to have your forget sins forgiven. If This is the pattern. This is what we see throughout Acts. You have to have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you to be the people of Christ. You can't not be the people of Christ. You can't have the Spirit of Christ and not be in Christ. You can't be in Christ and not have the Spirit of Christ. It's a one-to-one -one thing. We believe that things have cleared itself up. 
And that's why when we raise our children, we want to raise them in the body. Okay? We want to have them here learning about Jesus, but we want to pray for their sins to be forgiven. We want to pray for them to have faith in Christ. The conclusion then in this covenant theology is we believe that the people of God are only those who have been born again by the Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells within the people of God who have a new heart. This is why we're a Baptist church. We believe you have to repent and believe before you receive the sign of being a part of the people of God through baptism. And here's where it gets practical. Do you really know, I mean really know, truly, if you're a believer, do you know that you have the Spirit of God within you? I mean, I know it's, it's easy to think about. It's, it's, okay, yeah, of course I have the Spirit of God. No, no, really. Do you realize the privilege of that? Do you realize that's unique? That the people of old long for that promise to be fulfilled. And we get to live in it. I have no idea how that works. But here's what I know. The Spirit of God is working in you, gifting you to be a part of this body. Changing you, convicting you of sin, making you more Christ-like. We have fellowship with Christ. That's what it means to be a people of God. Are you in a relationship with Jesus? Do you love Him? Do you follow Him? The privilege that we have to have the Spirit of God resting upon us is huge. And the people of old could never say, as we can, that we have the Spirit of God indwelling us every day. It's a high and holy privilege. There's a confession of faith called the London Baptist Confession. I'm going to read quickly from it, page 114 on baptism. And I want you to listen to the terminology here. It says, Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ to, to be unto Him the party baptized, a sign of His fellowship with Him. And although this is not the Word of God, I want to say that just like anybody else writes a book talking about the things of God, the things that you consider, and here's what I want you to consider about this, a sign of the fellowship with Him. You have fellowship with Jesus. If you're a believer... You have fellowship with Him. The question is, do you? Do you commune with Him? Do you have fellowship with Him? Do you realize as a believer in Jesus, we have a relationship with Him? We know Him. It's alive and active. He's not dead. We have a relationship with Christ. Fellowship with Him. In His death and resurrection, of His being engrafted unto Him, of His remission of sins, this is, a, this is what baptism is, or excuse me, is a sign of remission of sins and of giving up Him up to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. So when you come out of that water, it's saying, I, I am dead to sin, I'm alive to Christ, and I want to follow Him and walk in newness of life. Those who do actually profess repentance toward God and faith in and obedience in the Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. That's why we're a Baptist church. If anybody in here has repented of their sins and trusted in Christ and not been baptized, let me just say this clearly. You're walking in sin, and you need to be baptized. There's no reason to not. It's a fundamental, it's a fundamental rejection of the very gospel you claim to embrace. It's saying, I don't want to be, I don't want this sign. I don't want to enter, in, enter into the covenant community. I don't want to receive uh, this, and I don't want to declare, and I don't want to appeal to God for a clean conscience through my, my baptism into Christ because I just, I just don't want to or don't feel like it's necessary. So we can have a great baptism. If you want to get baptized, we can get baptized next week. If you've not been baptized, talk to me about it. I want you to be baptized. And we will celebrate together your clinging by God's grace to His work, and we will celebrate together the finished work of Christ on your behalf. Um, so the final thing is this if you're not a believer if you're not a Christian 
I want to appeal to you to become a Christian today. I want to appeal to you to have the Spirit of God dwell within you, to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus and be baptized. And we'll do it. We'll go be baptized. Baptism and communion should be this thing, walks hand in hand where you see it as you can't see faith disconnected from it. It's not like there's faith and then there's baptism. It is faith. Everything about baptism is about expressing faith in Jesus. And I want you to do that. I want you to pray for more and more people. And then secondly, I want you to begin to think and pray about in Acts chapter 2, what does it mean that the Spirit of God dwells within the people of God? That you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That you have God, the God of the universe, resting upon you. And if you're not a Christian, this is the appeal. Repent of your sins. I have been following the prince of the power of the air. Stop doing that. Say, God, I'm sorry. I repent of my sin. And I trust in you alone, Jesus. And then be baptized. Talk to me about it. I want you to do it. Um, I say all this to say this. One last thing. Um, people have viewed this differently again. And in the end, we do not believe... Being a Baptist church, um, we're not saved, we're not a Christian because we're a Baptist church. We can't rightly say, uh, well, we've got this whole covenant thing right, so you guys are all wrong. In the end, every Christian is clinging to the same hope in Christ alone. Not in my theology, not in my view of the covenants, not in my view of whether we get baptism right or wrong. We may, I, I, we may get to a point, I, I, I could be wrong, but here's what I know I'm not wrong about. Jesus saves. Here's what I know I'm not wrong about. The people of God have the Spirit of God within them. I know that. So let's follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Andy, go ahead and come up, the team. And we're just going to worship, and we're going to enjoy the Spirit of God being in the people of God. We're going to do together what the people of old could not do. We're going to enjoy a Spirit-led, Christ-centered worship time. Let's pray. Father God, take everything that I imperfectly said and help us to, in unity, just worship You and thank You. Holy Spirit, thank You that You are in us testifying to our spirit with Your spirit with cries and groans and yearnings that are too deep from words that we are indeed children of God. Thank You for making a family. Thank You for wanting a family and coming in to make us Your sons and Your daughters. God, we uh, ask for revival. We ask for people to repent and be baptized, for them to cling all of their hope in Jesus. We want the Spirit, Holy Spirit, we want you to dwell more and more people around this globe. And we want for our children and the growing coming generations of our church, God, we want young men and women coming to know you at an early age. And we, by your grace, want to just put gospel kindling all around them. The Holy Spirit, when you come upon them, they're just set ablaze and on fire for you. I want my son to be a missionary wherever you call him to be. I want him to know you and to love you and have your spirit and dwell within him and just send him on mission the rest of his life. And I want that for all of our sons and daughters in this room. Holy Spirit, work in power. Thank you that we in this room, by your grace, can be called the people of God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship. Amen.